This is our first review show of 2023. Not only in a new format, but a new voice for this show as well. Due to other commitments, Neil and Phil are not able to join us today. Our streaming king, Declan, has stepped into the breach. Unfortunately, Jeff and his outlandish views are still with us. And I will hand over to him to start the show. Thanks, Graham. Welcome to the latest edition of At The Flicks, your one-stop shop for movie news, interviews and reviews. This is our new format review show, more film focus, less waffle, which means Jeff talks less. Our reviews include All Quiet on the Western Front, The Fablemans and Plain. A Gerard Butler movie? That must be your pick, Graham. Not, not this time, someone beat him to it. Guilty as charged. I'll wait until next month when I'm sure the Mail has a new film, <laughs> says Jeff. And in fact, he does. And I know people who've seen it on Prime and they say it's great. Greetings and salutations. I'm Jeff. Hi, I'm Graham. Hi, and I'm Declan. Uh, you may have heard of me on previous episodes of Carry On Streaming. Hi, I'm Darren. And other than at the flicks, you can follow me on Twitter at Desert Loves Movie. And you can read my old blogs at halfguarded.com. As we said in our introduction, this is our new format review show. Four members of the team have each picked a film they want to review. As they give their review, they will occasionally bring in others to give their thoughts on the movie in question. As an example, I could give a review on the classic Thank God It's Friday and then partway through, stop to let Neil comment on what I've said. And that leads us to another point about our reviews. The team do not have to pick current cinema releases. For instance, Jeff picked a streaming film this month, the highly acclaimed All Quiet on the Western Front. Hang on, isn't that in German? Jeff, you picked a foreign language film. (laughs) Yeah, and I bet he changed it to the dub version. And your bet would have paid off. (laughs) The other thing about our new film selection process is that it must be available to all members of the team to view so that they can pass comment on it if they want to. Which means Neil will never be able to pick any of his Latvian stick figure animation features he loves so much. And that will stop him trying to sneak in the classic slept, awoke, slept, awoke, miserable life just to (laughs) cheer us all up. Now, the fun will actually come depending whether the main reviewer allows the others to have their say. It'll be like a British parliamentary debate when the speaker decides to give way to allow someone else to talk. That said, and thinking about it, I see us all as British politicians. Me? I guess my parliamentary equivalent is Sir Keir Starmer, for obvious reasons. (laughs) Neil is often mistaken for Boris Johnson, and Graham, because of the way he edits out my best lines, is our Lee Anderson. Or as, he's or as he's affectionately known, 15P Graham. <laughs> as for Phil, well, as his MP is Cruella Braverman, I have nothing to add. And I always see Darren as a moderator. So he has to be Sir Lindsay Hoyle. <laughs> You've done it again, Jeff. You've managed to slip in a load of silly political jokes that have gone right over my head. <laughs> anyway, let's get on with the movies, shall we? And start with The Fablemans. Movies are dreams. you never forget. In this family, it's the scientists versus the artists. Sammy's on my team, takes after me. What kind of movie are we going to make? 
start our new format reviews with Steven Spielberg's The Fablemans, based very loosely on the director's early life, although all the character names have been fictionalised. Young Sammy Fableman's life is changed forever the night his parents take him to see Cecil B. DeMille's epic The Greatest Show on Earth. He becomes obsessed with making films, unaware of the conflicts at the heart of his family, the conflict being that of personalities. His mother Mitzi, played by Michelle Williams, is the artist, and his father Bert, played by Paul Dano, the workaholic technician. As the family moves around America, the differences become more and more apparent. Just what effect will this have on the young filmmaker? Graham, this highly acclaimed film is your choice. Even though it has been nominated for seven Oscars, do you think this is vintage Spielberg? Yes. That's an easy question, Jeff. Okay, do you want me to tell you a secret? And this can just be between you and me, dear listeners, and the other three movie nerds on this podcast. The secret is, this is our movie. It's a movie that nerds like you listening to this podcast will love. So this movie is Steven Spielberg's movie for fans of his art form. This is Spielberg's most personal film. It's his origin story. He gives us a little bit of him and his early life. The Fablemans has been reviewed as a love letter to cinema, and some have said it's a love letter to his family. I agree with those, but it's also a love letter to us, the people who adore cinema, the people who have watched every Sammy, I mean Sam, Fableman movie, who have read his autobiography and will re-watch Jaws, Close Encounters and AI repeatedly. We get it, Sam. It's for us. We get all the references. We get to see his dysfunctional family, the closet E.T. hid in, the meeting with John Ford that changed his life. We get it. It's not the best film. It's not his best film. I, I like all you're saying, Graham, but I prefer the films by Steven Spielberg to the film about Steven Spielberg. Okay, well, that's an opinion. I think this is going to be quite a divisive film. I think it'll cut people two ways really we get to see his dysfunctional family it's certainly a passion project that came to fruition during the crazy retrospective pandemic lockdown however it's 100 spielberg it's good story exceptional direction superb soundtracks sound and sound stage set dressing is masterful and it is just over two hours of solid entertainment, the acting superb with Seth Rogen delivering a career best performance. Michelle Williams is funny, sassy and yet so vulnerable. Could you explain to me what you mean by the story is good? Uh, it's it's a typical Spielberg. It's uh, All Spielberg's stories are very clear, very direct, very well paced. What's direct this about this? Was... It meanders all over the shop. What film did you see? Did you see the horror version? No, I saw a film where nothing happens for the first two-thirds of the film. I still liked it. Oh, Jeff, you're the wrong way round. It's the last bit of the film that's the bad bit. Right up until he goes right up until he goes to secondary school, it is a fantastic film. And then as soon as it switches, it's almost like from dusk till dawn, it's like two different films. As soon as he goes to secondary school and he moves to California, it's a completely different film. And I stopped enjoying it as much in that second half. You reckon? I like the old John Hughes vibes of all of that. I quite like that. <laughs> <laughs> if, to me it wasn't Spielberg though I thought the first, I thought it was brilliant The he got the tension, he got the emotion he got everything, he got you totally engaged while he was learning how to make films while he was using all his clever techniques you were finding out about his relationship with his parents he had that dilemma you know, finding out about his mum no spoilers, 
you were just hooked. And then suddenly, it's as if someone stopped it, put another film on. Well, that's what I thought anyway. Oh, right. Yeah. I preferred the other film. What about, where do you stand in this debate, Darren? I I, I liked it while I was there, but when I walked out of it, I just, I, I didn't really sort of have re- any real sort of feelings of it either way. It was a good family drama and everything, but I I, I know that it's, it's very obviously special to Spielberg because he's telling his story and everything like, like that. But to me, this could have been just any sort of um, Sunday afternoon movie but with really good techniques and, and, and everything. I went in expecting to see, you know, the, the story of, of Spielberg, and it was probably a bit too much like the story of Spielberg. Maybe it was just too realistic and too down-to-earth and too, too much of a story. It, it didn't feel, I don't know. Maybe I was expecting, like, a biopic, and I was going to come out with it, sort of getting all, like, the inspirations to his movies, and I didn't get that. I just got, you know, what it was like for him as a child. But wouldn't a biopic been just too ordinary? Probably, yeah. And like I say, this this is obviously something which is very important to Spielberg. It's you know it's something that he feels you know really important to him. It's very personal. I I, I liked it, but I just didn't get a, a great deal about it. My, my my to be honest, my favorite thing when you, when you talk about which side of the film for for me, but where it really got into life was at the school, where he finally showed his. His vid, his video of the, of the sort of the spring bake that he put together, and how everybody was sort of watching this film. It was like he found his calling in that moment. All the problems that he went through, all the, all the hassles he's had at school, with school, and that moment when he suddenly saw that it was actually bringing joy to people and people getting things out of it. So even the ones who hated him, to me, that was kind of a bit where I got goosebumps. That's where you recognise Spielberg. And what his calling was and what he was really going to do with the rest of his life. I think that's the bit for me that really came alive for me. Yeah, I mean, I quite liked um, that that bit with the spring break. What I liked about it was it proved that he was almost finding out that because people believe the camera doesn't lie, but you can edit and cut a film to make someone out to be good or bad just by your editing technique. And I think he proved that he took a real life situation and cut it in such a way that he could create villains and he could create heroes, even though they might not have been that. And I thought that was the skill he learned there, was how to, as you say, engage the audience in different emotions. Has your son Archie seen this? Yes, and he thought the same as me, surprisingly. Yes, I mean, he liked it from a filmmaking point of view, uh, much like he enjoyed Babylon for the same reasons that he thought they, <sighs> they showed different sides of... I had to get it in, Jeff. Yeah. There's no different sides of the filmmaking industry. He liked that aspect of it. Okay, back over to you, Graham. I just thought it was well put together. I thought the fact that this film comes from two of the Spielberg family, from his, his sister and himself, their combined view of, of their family growing up. And I just thought it was brilliant because it didn't follow any particular standard story. They produced their own thing it wasn't a biopic it wasn't factually accurate that was sort of Spielberg as the unreliable narrator Uh, I was very nervous for the first 20 minutes going into this film but then it just suddenly seemed to switch up a gear and I just absolutely loved it Uh, I was in the family I was living with them I was ducking the punches from the anti-semitic bullies I laughed at the monkey and, and had tears in my eyes when, when with the mother's dilemma and the father's heartbreak. I, it was just Spielberg. He's always 
going to gut punch you in the fields. And I just thought it was great. And to sum up, I was entranced. I was entertained. I recommend everybody go and watch it. It's an excellent personal film about one of the greatest living directors at the moment. And I'd like to leave you with one bit of advice. Watch the horizons in this film. They're always at the bottom or at the top of the picture because when the horizon's in the middle, it's as boring as shit. And I'm not going to argue with John Ford. Yeah, by the way, on that subject, I didn't, and I know Graham didn't, didn't twig who the actor was playing John Ford. Did you guys? I couldn't even see it when you told me who it was. Was he the guy from Whiplash? Can't remember his name. Was it wasn't him? No. Was it? No. Uh, Darren, did you know who it was before going in? No. No. Oh. It is, it, and I read on it after, so I didn't know at the time. It's David Lynch. Right. Wow. <laughs> and I couldn't see it. Yeah. Now that you mention, I'm just I just ran it back in my head, and the, I can hear it in the voice now. And I I also read up on it, and. I read up on it, and it's exactly what what he said to Spielberg. It's exactly what Spielberg remembers of the conversation. Yeah. I also loved when he came out from that meeting how the horizon was at the bottom and it was looking up as he walked away. And it's just like, ah, yeah, he, he was he's paying attention. Yeah. Excellent. So a great start to our new format show. We've just been discussing the Fablemans. Coming up, we have All Quiet in the Western Front and Tar. But next, we go to Darren and his choice of the month, Plane. Let's keep everybody in their seats. No exceptions, all right? Mayday, Mayday, Mayday. Trailblazer 119, we are dark. Anyone near dark, damn it. We're going to hit. We're going to hit. Then we're done somewhere in the Jolo Island cluster run by separatists and militias. The Filipino army won't even go there anymore. The clock is ticking. Every minute matters. My passengers, my responsibility. I'm gonna need your help. You're gonna need this. Form a military or something? You could say that. Then why'd they lock you up? No one cares what really happened. But they say redemption can be found in the most unusual places. We're getting off this island. The Gerard stars as a tough, no-nonsense pilot called Brody Torrance. So no-nonsense, he's been reduced to fly in unpopular scheduled routes in the Far East, which is why, on New Year's Eve, he is captain on the sparsely populated Trailblazer airline flight from Singapore to Honolulu. Unfortunately, the plane flies into bad weather and is forced to crash land on a remote island in the Philippines, worse still, the island is controlled by rebels. The Gerard has some tough choices to make to keep everyone alive. One of them being the prospect of releasing a convicted murderer who was being transported on this flight. This sounds like the setup of one of those exciting action films from the 80s. Darren, is it as good as that? I actually think it's a lot more. Because that's the sort of movie that I was uh, expecting in this film. Maybe it being Gerard Butler and the SEMA trailer. Um, I expected him to be a one-man unstoppable army. I was expecting a bigger uh, action set pieces with oil drums exploding in the background while he's walking calmly forward, um, all the sort of jumping over things while firing a machine gun. I was expecting all that, which, you know, I admit I would have been found completely enjoyable. I love a really over-the-top action movie. Where this really started to impress me was early on. 
And it's the scene where the plane gets into difficulty and it goes down. I thought that scene was done so well. There was so much drama and tension. Mm. And watching it, you would think that there was as much care in that as there was doing just an absolutely dedicated um, plane disaster movie. And not merely just the setup for the uh, for the action later, but you know they really took the time with that scene and made it dramatic. You really got the heart pounding on who was going to survive and, and everything like that. And then you had the subplot of the authorities who were basically trying to find this plane. Uh, you know they were debating on what to do, how to deal with it with the press, and putting together the possible ransom money that they'd need, and putting together the extraction team. It really made a point of making those disaster movie type elements work on their own. And then the action was cut to like, you know, and, and almost an added bonus. One of the joys I had with this film was Tony Goldwyn's performance. It's good to see him back. And I thought he was great as the Mr. Fixer. Yeah. In a different movie, he that performance, he could be like the leading man, the one who's trying to basically, you know, make everything work from the ground. He, you know, I thought he was, you know, really good and really charismatic. Where the film I found was really working for me as an action movie is I realised I wasn't wanting any action. I was getting really nervous when it was the prospect of a gun battle coming up because I didn't want to see action in this film. I just wanted those passengers to escape and to find a way to get off that island as easily as possible and for as many of them to get home as possible. I really wanted that co-pilot to get home to his family. I really wanted Gerard Butler to get out of there. I found that I was really invested in the actual plight of these people. The action, when it came about, it wasn't exciting to watch fun action. It was nerve-wracking because it felt kind of realistic. I mean, the first time that uh, Gerard Butler actually gets into a fight in this film, it was very down and dirty even though they managed to establish early on that he was a um that he could handle himself it was this like brief little clip of him uh, on court on camera which proved that he was it was a tough guy but actually a sort of like a you know an everyday tough guy he didn't turn into a guy who was uh you know able to do like you know fancy kung fu moves or get into like martial arts or anything like that i wanted to say on the action the you talk about when Gerard, that fight scene with Gerard Butler with, when he's trying to get to the phone and the camera stays on him as it goes around the room, you could almost feel the, the violence and the punches on it. I thought that was, uh, that was excellent. Yeah, I mean, it was very much a, a grappling type fight, you know, grappling and scrapping. I think it's, it's how a fight in that situation you would expect to, um, to, to go down because most of the action scenes involve the um, extraction team, the professionals, you know, they looked like they were sort of like, you know, shooting from cover and everything. It looked like a, an authentic battle scene. That really sort of impressed me and made the film more exciting because it, it, it had a bit of like a real sort of grittiness to it. What I really, really found refreshing about this, this film as well is the villains were really great villains because there was nothing charming about them at all. In, in a lot of action movies you tend to find that especially the, uh, the the lead villain guy will really go over the top, be the one who tries to steal the movie with a, you know, really sort of flamboyant scene with a sort of like, you know, really sort of flamboyant villain. These were just vicious thugs. There was nothing, you know, likeable about them at all. They were just absolutely horrible people. The way it sort of showed you what they'd done to previous people that they'd captured, 
the ruthlessness of the executed people and, and the sort of how you know how he did that really added an element to me. And I've got to say, you know, I was I was like really gripped the, the entire film, and it went for me to be in expecting to see just a really fun shoot 'em up ride, but it, instead I was invested in everyone surviving. It really had an effect on me, and I came away with it, you know, really impressed. My main complaint was was the character of Coulter, the criminal, um, because. I, I thought his character was great. He had this wonderful redemption arc and you were basically throughout the film were thinking, is he going to turn and, and that sort of thing? Is he, is, is he going to stick by me? Is he basically going to, uh, you know, sort of, or just run off and, and leave them? You know, his his character was, was so cool and everything. I was expecting at the end of the film that we'd get like a post-credit scene or something showing what happened to him because he just kind of disappears in the last battle. You see him rushing off with the money. I expected that the film would end showing him going off into the distance or what he was actually going to do on the island if he was going to manage to take over the island or something like that and because he was such a compelling character and apparently they are talking about doing a sequel because this film has gone down really well and they're talking about following up on him i just thought they might just have some sort of little easter egg to show him at, at the end but otherwise, I, I was really impressed with this this film. It, there was just something about this felt a step above all of your regular action movie. I thought it was great. Um, yeah, apparently they, they can't call the sequel Ship because that's too close to making a, a, a little bit of a slip. I'm with you. I really enjoyed the film. I know Graham did. I was sitting alongside him and he was jumping up and down in his seat. Not true. I did, I did enjoy it, but I wasn't wetting myself. I thought it was all right. You know, I kept referring to it as a plane has fallen because yeah. I don't know why he didn't ha- he didn't have the has fallen in it. But yeah, I I did. I thought it was good. I thought it was a bit of a cross between uh, Air Force One and Behind Enemy Lines, a two thousand and one film that I really liked. And Darren's covered it all. Yes, that the yeah. first action sequence in the plane when it's trying to go through that storm. Holy cow! I was on the edge of my seat for that one. And and then it it just never lets up. I thought the fight scenes were great. I would really like to see more of Mike Coulter's character as well. I thought he was good. He played it really sort of quiet and menacing. Excellent stuff. Yeah, great film. I don't need a sequel, thank you very much. I think one and done. Let's be fair. When you fly out, uh, Darren, this is not going to be one of your in-flight movies. No, this will never be an in-flight movie. <laughs> that first 15 minutes was pretty nerve-wracking, I'll give you that. So, so Deck, I know you haven't seen it. Would you go see it on the strength of this? I don't know if I'd go to the cinema to see it, but I'll definitely watch it when it comes to streaming after all those good comments, definitely. Sounds like good fun. Yeah, it is. It's good, old-fashioned fun. Very, very well made. So that was plain. And I'm still surprised Graham didn't pick this one as his choice of the month. Like I said, he's saving himself for that male <laughs> film coming to prime. Oh, God, no. And leaving that thought behind, let's turn to our next film. From Netflix, we have the latest screen version of All Quiet in the Western Front. Loslegen. 
based on a book by Eric Maria Remarque, who served as a German infantryman during World War I. All Quiet on the Western Front has been filmed twice before, in 1930 and 1979. The difference this time is that it has been made by a German production company. In 1917, teenager Paul Bemer. Felix Kremer and his friend are influenced by rousing speeches from school officials and go to fight for the fatherland. They all enlist and are sent to the trenches. Very soon, their passion for fighting for their country is replaced by horror and fear. Jeff, despite the fact you changed the language option to dubbed English, I'm still surprised you picked this film. How does it compare with other versions? Well, if you look at it in terms of scale and realistic battle sequences, it is the best of the three. When we are with the soldiers in this film, you feel like you are with these men in the trenches. You're almost living in the dirt and the carnage. However, overall, the original 1930 version has the edge because its characters are better defined and therefore the movie becomes more memorable. Also, the earlier version is tighter in terms of narrative, more focused, and includes a far better ending than the 2022 version. Spoiler alert, I am going to be talking about that ending if you haven't seen it. Now, that said, there is still much to admire in this German-made Netflix production. I really liked the first act. Loved it, in fact. It has a provocative start, throwing us into an attack during which an unnamed soldier the camera's following is killed. We then follow the progress of his uniform, removed from his dead body, patched up and recycled. Why would they do that? Because it's 1917, the third year of the war, and financially countries are starting to be crippled. So after that impressive beginning, we're introduced to our hero, Paul, the recipient of the uniform we've been following, and the euphoria he and his friends show when they sign up for war. All are high in the thought of glory for the fatherland before they quickly realise the hell they've been sent into. Impressive, fast-paced storytelling, very well edited, and bookended by two scenes of carnage that show the true horror of this pointless conflict. However, the downside is we only have time to focus on the character of Paul at this stage, believably paid by Felix Camarera, a great performance that goes from actor to reactor as he gamely spends most of the film caked in blood, mud and gore. Dick. I only just found out it's his first film. I didn't know that. No way. Yeah. Can you believe that? I was stunned. It's an amazing performance and, and uh, I only found out because they mentioned it at the BAFTAs, they pointed him out and said it was his first film. And you think, that's incredible. Wow, I didn't know that. Darren, you got something to say. I mean, you just mentioned it, how the, the other characters, you didn't really sort of get a sense of who they were. Could you tell yeah. them apart from each other? Because one of the problems that I had was, no, apart from the lead character, when they were in the trenches and everything, I couldn't work out who died and who'd survived and stuff because they all caked as, and dressed as they were. They basically what we're saying. They could have had those characters could have disappeared and just been replaced with new ones for I knew. I couldn't work out who was who. Yeah, I totally agree. I think Paul and I'm going to go on to talk about his friend Kit, the the older soldier who trains him. Apart from those two, I had no sense of who anybody else was. And apparently, if you watch it in the right way, when they first introduced, if you go from left to right, that's the order in which they killed. Okay. Oh, good grief! Do you think they did that deliberately? Because... I think so. Yeah. Yeah. Darren is absolutely right. And I had that. I had exactly the same problems. There were two people in there. And and that causes me problems as the film goes on, which I'll come on to now. So, as I said, that first act is great. 
but you could only focus on one character then, and then Kit comes into it, and I'll talk about him in a minute. It's Cat, isn't it? Is it Cat? Sorry, Cat. Okay, sorry, I stand corrected. Kaczynski. So after that first act, it jumps forward 18 months, and it then adds a subplot which isn't in the book or the other versions, and it's the story of the events around the peace process. It's a true story. It's about Matthias Erzberger, played by the only actor I knew from beforehand, Daniel Brühl, and his mission to get a peace treaty signed to end the war and stop the slaughter. Unfortunately, a deal with the French. This cleverly introduces the other side of the conflict, the officers and their war games. Now, for me, one of the best British films of the last decade is Journey's End, which showed how these officers acted on the English side. So it was absolutely no surprise to see they were equally arrogant on both the French and German sides. These upper military classes don't care about the carnage resulting from their war games as long as they were well fed and warm. And it gets me annoyed again. So I'm going to hand over to Deck while I calm down. Um, I thought that that was an excellent addition to the film. And I thought it really brought home to light how pointless war was and how petty little as you say, arrogant people were making decisions, especially the one towards the end, which is just just horrendous decision when you know there's only hours left and yet you decide to do that just because you're an egotistical idiot. And it just, again, the, the whole film just brings home the pointlessness of war and how these people make decisions and it affects tens of thousands, millions of lives. Absolutely, and it's all games to them. If you go to Journey's End, you've then yeah. you know, you've got the the English military leaders getting tipped off by the Germans that are that are, a battle's going to take place so they can clear out of there. You've got the French who are deliberately prolonging the conflict and needless deaths because hey, they're French and they can. And you've got that, as you say, that that German guy. I'm just going to do one last uh, one last little attack for my own ego. And they were losing 80,000 men a month. And this guy, the, the German general, says, well, I'm worried about the Social Democrats. It flashes to the, the piece where the, those 80 young recruits took their masks off at the wrong time and they all died, choked to death. You know, just unbelievable. And it still resonates. You know, we're in the middle of a war at the moment between Ukraine and Russia. And if the figures are to be believed, the Russians are throwing new conscripts into the front lines and they're losing somewhere between 900 to 1,000 men a day. So it's exactly the same all these years later. There's just some great, great scenes. I, I mean... I still think Journey's End is a much better film, but there were just such great scenes. Uh, the dinner scene with the uh, general and his aide-de-camp, where, well, that was just brilliant, the, the way they worded that. And you could see that the young man, the aide-de-camp, thought that the general was a complete asshole, but couldn't say it. But it didn't have any effect on his life because he was going back to his rich family the general actually wanted the war to continue because, as he said, what's a general without war? Oh, it's just like, God, dear, oh, Lord. Yeah. I thought the light, the lighting, the sound and the set dressing were incredible. I thought the bit with the tanks and the flamethrowers was, was just off the chart. It really was a great, great thing. Yep. Yeah. Yeah, I just want to back up what Graham's just said about the sound. I mean, it's no surprise that it won Best Sound. Um, I think it might lose to Avatar at the Oscars, but it um, it was incredible. The noise of the bullets, the, you really felt you were there, uh, you were in amongst it. And um, 
I thought it was superb. I thought it was absolutely a, a fantastic film. I do go back to your, you know, the additional subplot. I think you're right. I think that's very clear what it's trying to do and that brings in. But I think this film's real strength is when it's in the trenches. And that sequence about halfway through the film with the tank battle, with the St. Shimon's coming um, over the top and the, the guys with the flamethrowers. I mean, you're in hell watching that. It is. It's brilliant. Yeah. It, it, it is probably one of the best action sequences of the year, I think. And Darren, you know a fair bit about action sequences. How would you rate that sequence? Horrifying. I think I would have to go back over way to um, Saving Private Ryan to think of another action battle scene that really affected me like that did. To the extent that I, after watching the, the film, I didn't want to watch a, a war film for a long time. And and just, just go back to yeah. what um, Graham was, was saying. I don't think I've had a film where I felt so angry at the screen as I did when that general's doing that speech and he's telling them that they're basically going to march off in the final moments of the war for one last battle just to gain a last victory and gain a, sort of, a bit of sort of territory. I, I was absolutely seething of that scene it's the sort of thing that you do these little things the whole point that they actually set a time limit as if it was like a sport hostilities will finish at this particular time and they they have this stick that basically wherever you know the battle be the sort of territories would sort of end there so it was almost like they gave them some sort of incentive to actually keep fighting for the generals just just to get that extra line how stupid you know wars is always gets me in a film like this where you've got these like countries in war and yet the leaders are free to basically meet up somewhere you know and just sit and sort of like you know talk across a table while the regular man basically have to kill each other on site just to throw in a, pl- a plug for someone else, if everyone, anybody is, is a fan of graphic novels or, or comic strips in general, there is a really good collection of uh, comics from the 70s and 80s uh, called Charlie's War by Pat Mills that, that ran for for years in, in a comic called Battle. It's almost like what, all, all quite on Western Front, but told from a British perspective. It's about a young lad who basically lies about his age to go fight in the First World War. You would recognise a lot of the scenes from because it was obviously inspired by All Quiet on the Western Front, just a regular British guy's perspective. How this comic actually, at a time when comics were like for kids, how this comic actually, a comic strip, managed to be in there for so long is, is beyond me because it's it's a, it's one of the best comic strips of all time in my opinion. That's that's Charlie's War, but just just to sort of little, if anyone wants to have a bit more reading beyond the novel of uh, No Quiet, okay. Thank you for that tip. Graham, you had something to say. Yeah, I was just uh, picking up on what da- Darren was saying. The general was going for like, whatever it was, 100 metres of, of land. Uh, and the irony was in the train carriage, the Germans were giving away Alsace and Lorraine, you know, two huge regions of Germany. They were giving back to the French. And yet this idiot was obsessed with, oh, we're going to gain this tiny little bit of land. And yet... Alsace and Lorraine were given away by their bosses. Unbelievable. Yeah, and and there's little bits as well, isn't it? Like in the train, when you know he's trying to get it done quickly to try and stop more people getting killed, and the French are moaning about the quality of the pastries, and you just think, oh God, yes, yes, you just yes. think, really, <laughs> oh, yeah. that's yeah. The, the, you know, and you, it just sums yeah. it all up. It just, yeah, and it it sickens you. It does. Yeah, yeah. Well, I'm 
actually going to be restrained now. I was going to talk about the ending of this film, but I've pulled back from this, and I think you need to see it for yourself. But when you've seen it, check out one of the other versions of the film, and I think you'll find the simplicity of that is a much better ending. But I'll leave that for you to decide. So while this version of All Quiet in the Western Front is not up there with, I, I call my First World War classics, the original All Quiet in the Western Front, Journey's End, or even Paths of Glory, it does have some very impressive moments, and we've spoken about those. You'll not easily forget the squalor or the violence. For that reason, it's a shame it went straight to Netflix, as those battle scenes would have been something else in the cinema. Worth checking out. I totally agree. If I'd have watched this, I mean, in some ways, I'm pleased I didn't, because, as you say, the horror and everything would have been ramped up on a big screen. And I think you would have found yourself shouting, literally, the audience would have been shouting at the screen. And it is a shame. It's a, it's a missed opportunity of not only the two the two things that I think make cinema work. It's the size of the screen, but you can argue that yeah. you can get some quite big tellies now. But it's that shared journey with people you don't know in a room. And I think this would have, it, it just would have, the emotion would have grown yeah. because yeah. you'd have been going through it together. And I think that would have really made this a memorable film. Yeah. Since I put my review together, we've had the BAFTAs and All Quiet won Best Film. It's clearly voted for by the tofu-eating Wokarati. Oh, People who the nearest they get to any form of combat is when they pick up their fish knife in anger at their Finn and Haddie being undercooked. If you seriously wanted to select a film that reflected the underlying darkness of the human soul but spoke to the modern generation, then the winner would have been the Batman. But hey, it wasn't even nominated for Best Film. So all you BAFTA voters, go away and edit more of Roald Dahl's books and leave us, the normal viewers, alone. Thank you, guys. Okay. Bloody hell, Jeff. Okay, that's All Quiet on the Western Front, which you can watch on Netflix. Finally, we go to Tar. You want to dance the mask? You must service the composer. If you're here, then you already know who she is. Lydia Tarr is many things. As a conductor, Tarr began her career with the Cleveland Orchestra, Chicago Symphony Orchestra, the Boston Symphony Orchestra, until she had last arrived here at our own New York Philharmonic. Thank you for joining us, Maestro. Thank you. Blanchett has been Oscar nominated for her performance as highly acclaimed classical music conductor Lydia Tarr. She is at the top of her profession with an upcoming live performance of Marla's Fifth and a new book coming out. However, underneath this success, Lydia has some dark secrets, some of which are about to be revealed. Tarr has been named as the best film of 2022 by more critics than any other movie. Is it that good? I thought it was an exceptional film. I thought it was fantastic. I loved everything about it, and I keep thinking about it days later. I thought the sound was amazing. I thought uh, Kate Blanchett was absolutely fantastic and deserved her awards, and I'm sure she'll get more. You've got to stick with it. It's not got the best start. It's a slow burner at the start. You know, the fact it opens with end credits is an interesting one. 
I think it has to start with all this build up and you sort of from her interview you find out about her life and you know it's a it's a easy way to get her backstory you get into that sort of pretentious side of things you know when they're having the meal a lot of it doesn't make sense to your eye because they're just talking in show-offy sort of name dropping and stuff like that and I just thought that set the scene for everything that happens afterwards and the dissension from someone who was right at the top of their career at the top of their game and everything all the cracks start to show and then her life just starts to disintegrate in front of you and Kate Blanchett just does it so beautifully without overdoing it. Obviously, that can be a danger when you've got these sub-stuck type of performances is, is that you can over-egg it. And I thought she did it brilliantly. She sort of was in denial a lot of the time that any of this stuff was, was going on. And then, um, yeah, I thought it was fantastic. Do you think that opening, it reminded me a great deal of Citizen Kane because it gives you all the facts in that interview about her and then as the film progresses, you get underneath of that and you get to see the real person. Yeah, 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 very similar to that, yeah. Um, some people have um, said that they think the film's almost, you should watch it back to front, which is another idea, I suppose. Oh, like Memento. <laughs> I thought the supporting cast did a good enough job. Obviously, they're in the shadow of Kate Blanchett, but And I think you can, you can read so much into it. There's so many, it's an intelligent film and it doesn't spoon feed you. And you can come at that film, and, and I suspect you know the four of us could could have different ideas on what happened, because it's not straightforward. It's not black and white. You know, is some of it in her head? Is someone out there stalking her and, and making her sort of go crazy? And you could read so many different things into it. You know, is is uh, Olga an innocent character in it, or actually is she just as manipulative as Lydia was earlier on in her career? You know, these are the things that you could argue about all night. There's more than one film in here. You could almost watch it and come out with four different films, um, depending how you interpret it, which I thought was brilliant. Okay. Uh, Darren, I know you've seen it as well. How do your thoughts match with what Dex's saying? Quite a lot, actually, especially what he says at the end about you can draw so many things on what sort of film you're watching because towards the end, it is that sort of uncertain sort of film where you're wondering how much of this or what we've been watching is real. When you get to that scene where she runs on the stage and everything, has this all been in her head? Is she some sort of fantasist that's got these sort of delusions that she that she was never this sort of big star that she is, but she's piecing together things that's going on in her in her in her actual life, but sort of having this sort of like fancy about her being this you know this massive superstar, but that she's not. It's you know, and there's lots of things in there. I mean, some things that I wish I'd been looking out for is the fact that there's several scenes where you actually see a, um, a ghost figure in the background okay when she's in her apartment you can see a shadow of someone in the background mm. which is possibly the, uh, the the young girl who killed herself but it's been freeze frames where you can actually see this figure really sort of you know as if it's stalking her Ooh. you know and there's, there's, there's so, so many things like this where it's sort of I'm, I'm not sure what the actual story is that we were watching? What was it actually all real? I, th- I thought it was, you know, absolutely tremendous. And and yes, yeah, she she is a deluded character when, when she's being confronted about the things that she has been doing. This is a, a thing about you know Kate, why her performance was so great is she's talking about how she has no idea what these allegations are, where they've come from, 
but the way she's saying it, you you know that they that, that these allegations are actually true, but she's not seeing anything that she's done wrong. It's just this really subtle performance. I can't really describe it, but you can tell what what we're saying is is right, and that she sort of knows it, but she's deluding herself. It, it's just it was just you know a, 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 amazing, but yeah, I, I thought I thought this film was absolutely you know fa- fantastic. I've I've heard I've heard some people say that. The, the thought that it sort of dragged in places, that it was slow. I didn't think that at all. Every single thing that was going on, I was great. One thing that actually did think, it almost felt like watching Whiplash, but from the um, from the point of view of the conductor, of the abuser, look, looking at things from his point of view. Uh-huh. But that's sort of something I, I got out of it, this. But... Um, yeah, just amazing. I've got to say as well, and I'm, I'm guessing that you will like this scene, Jeff. When she's doing the presentation at the uh, at the university, and the uh, and she gets into the argument with the young lad who says he doesn't want to uh, listen to um, white cis male music, and she pretty much yeah. you know tears him apart. I, you know, I, I I I I thought that scene what scene was excellent, and of course the backlash on that when people when managed to make those videos where they take her words out completely out of context. Um, yeah, that that was some you know some sort of you know some good some good stuff there, some some quite timely stuff. Didn't that leg twitching get on your nerves? It did mine. Oh, for Christ's sake, cut it out, you know, because he was do- only doing it. At certain times. So I think he was deliberately doing that. She should have smacked him harder. Did you enjoy that bit though, Jeff? No, I didn't. Because she put down Jerry Goldsmith. She had a pop at Jerry Goldsmith and his classic Planet of the Apes score. I have written off to the Goldsmith Appreciation Society. They are going to be picketing this film, I'll tell you that. <laughs> Do you think Todd Field was trying to say something when about social media and media outlets when he was showing that how... Uh, a perfectly good, you know, might not agree with it, Jeff, but a perfectly good sort of debate is then cut up and sliced and it sounds like something completely different and how you can destroy someone when actually they didn't say those things. They did say those words, but they didn't say it with that intent. I know, Deck Graham does it to me all the time. Uh, I'm the victim here. Oh, yeah, yeah, sure, Jeff. Yeah, good. I tell you what, there's two, two or three points that Darren said there that I've never, that I didn't think of. That certainly the bit with the ghost, and that they're looking at a different perspectives. I'm going to have to go back and watch this again. Uh, I did think it was is a bit overlong, and it took me a time to get into it, but I was always intrigued. I will say that for it. Can I just ask something? Because it's been playing on my mind ever since I watched it. Did anyone pick up on that one sentence where they said that Krista? used to conduct for the youth orchestra. And that one thing, there was a magazine article and they said, oh, she used to, they were interviewing her about, I think it was the deposition or something, and they were interviewing and saying she used to, and then, but then the celloist, her video was playing for the youth orchestra. And I was thinking, is there more in this than... I didn't pick up on that. Has Olga come in to destroy her life because she knew Krista? Uh, you know, and I did, again, mm. this is what I'm saying. You yeah. can read so much into this film that you can make it into something else. I'm going to have to go back and watch this again. It's, it's really funny because I've got family in New York. They have close links with people like this and they hated the film. They absolutely hated it. And one of them said to me, well, Tar, she was just a narcissistic arsehole. And they move in those circles. Again, Blanchett's performance was just brilliant. Well, that was really interesting. 
in in terms of I'm now going to have to go back and watch this film again. Have you seen it, Graham? No, not yet. It's sitting in in my player, ready to go. Yeah, I do want to watch it. It, it it's Marla. I love Marla's music. It's fantastic that oh, pretentious Marla. Oh, um, well, it's yeah. He was he was hated by the uh, the Nazis. I, it's two films in two weeks I've seen which features Marla's music. So. Yeah, I'm looking forward to it. Music featured heavily in Shutter Island, which we've just done a, a thing on. So, yeah, I'm looking forward to that. It's not pretentious to like classical music, Jeff. So Hitler didn't <sighs> like him then? Hitler didn't like disco either, Jeff. So you wouldn't have got on with him. Uh, but he was a bit big fan of Thank God It's Friday. Yes, <laughs> probably. From his base down in Argentina at the time. Yeah. Anyway. <laughs> He's on the moon, isn't he? Yeah, now we're getting silly. Uh, that's our reviews for the month complete. So, gentlemen, let's find out what you rate as the best out of those four. Deck, I'll start with you. Even though I really loved All Quiet on the Western Front, I think my experience of Tar will live with me for longer, probably because it was in a cinema, but I would have to go with Tar. I just thought it's... And as you say, you, you can watch it again and again, and you'll find something different each time. So I'll definitely go with Tar. I almost changed my choice to Tar. I've kept it to the Fablemans because despite what I said about it, it stayed with me for days after. I was still thinking back on scenes. What about you, Darren? What's your film of the month? I'm going to have to go with Tar as well. It's one of those films that as soon as it went away from me, so I went straight onto the internet and just started looking up people's theories about it because I just knew there was going to be stuff I'd missed. It was one of those films that really gets discussion going about what it is you've actually just watched. It completely blow my mind. What about you, Graham? Plain, I expect. The Gerard. Yeah, well, absolutely. goes without question, really, doesn't it? No, um, actually, just before that, I'm really psyched now to watch Star. That's really pumped me up for that one. No, The Fablemans for me. I just thought it was just entertainment. So it's a tie. It's a tie. The Fablemans and Tar. Top films of the month. Okay, so, gentlemen, I can safely announce that's a wrap and another At The Flicks is in the can. What does everyone think of the new format? Yeah, I, I like the new format, Graham. And now it's over to you, listeners. Please let us know what you think. Do you like the changes to the show? And to everyone else, thank you for listening and goodbye. Mm.